So, um, yeah, I guess we will go ahead and, and get started. Um, welcome back to Comics School, everybody. Um, this is super, super exciting. Um, we are broadcasting live from my basement in Minnesota all the way down to Piedmont. Um, and so I'll let uh, our next guest uh, introduce himself, give a little bit of a biography, um, and, and then we'll get into talking about some, some comics. So, uh, sir, how... Matt, how how are you? I'm good. It's yeah. sunny out here. Seeing the birds fly around. So yeah, can you just give us a, just a just a brief snippet of um, of who you are um, at Piedmont College? So I'm Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center here at Piedmont College. Um, Lillian Smith was a white civil rights activist who was very active, um, at least in regards to writing essays in the. 40s, 50s, and 60s. I mean, she published a journal with her partner, Paula Stelling, from like 1936 to 45, and had people like um, W.J. Cash in there, Jacob Lawrence, uh, W.B. Du Bois had a review of a book that was in there, um, Polly Murray, tons of others. She was connected with Martin Luther King Jr., so just a phenomenal kind of story with her and her civil rights activism. That's and I great. got here to Piedmont, um, very circuitously through my graduate studies and other things too. And what what was what were your graduate studies? So I went to the University of Louisiana Lafayette. So in, in Louisiana, of course, um, enjoyed a lot of good food. I'm from Louisiana originally, North Louisiana, and ULL is South Louisiana, which is totally different. But good crawfish and boudin and everything like that. Graduated in 2014 with my doctorate. Um, Worked at the Ernest J. Gaines Center, so had connections there with, with him and his work. And then went to Auburn for a couple of years and was an instructor there. And then uh, was a Fulbright last year in Norway. So went to Norway last year and taught different things. Um, actually taught Jennings and Duffy's um, Kindred there. And the students really kind of liked it and latched onto it. And then came here. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so we've been, we've been talking a lot about this and we've been starting – in, in earnest this way. Um, what's your origin story? Where, how did you come to, how, how did you come to, to comics? Um, and in, in your life, how did that become a part of your life? And, and in some ways your work? <clears throat> well, as a kid, I didn't really read comics. I mean, I had some of them, I think I had one of the secret wars with, um, with Spider-Man in the black suit with the symbiote suit on it. I had a couple of X-Men did a couple of Batmans, bought, you know, G.I. Joe and Transformers, the shameless marketing ploys, of course. But then looking back at those G.I. Joes, really kind of interesting. And didn't really do anything with them for the longest time. A few years back, may have been three or four years back, just started picking up things here and there. Then I think almost right before Black Panther came out, probably a few months before that, started looking more into things and really looking to Black Panther. I think I read Jungle Action. So Don McGregor, you know, mm-hmm. um, Billy Graham and others, the, the Jungle Action series, and kind of got connected with it and then started doing the other stuff. And that's kind of led to a bunch of different things, you know, diving into Milestone and 
more Black Panther stuff, really diving into people like Christopher Priest and Dwayne McDuffie and their work. Those are those are great. Those jungle action is is really where I picked up in a picked up Black Panther as well. And Don McGregor and Billy Graham's work is just yeah, just unbelievable. Def, if you if you have a chance, um, find some of those at your local comic shop. Don't go out right now. Maybe maybe <laughs> maybe wait a minute, but but put them on your put them on your list. Um, yeah, e- even finding those. I, I got my I got one of my short boxes here. But even finding those like in Scotland. I mean, it was in Scotland. Yeah, so so what was crazy was last year. This is the only jungle action I have right now. I still want the the ones in Georgia, but um, last year some of the first, not the first milestones I bought, but I, I found like when we did a little quick trip from Norway to Scotland, I found <laughs> just real quick a good amount. I found a good amount of milestone stuff, like the um, issue thirteen of Icon with Buck Wild. Um, I found the whole whole Christopher Priest. This one's, I love this one. I found the whole Christopher Priest um, Falcon series. The Christopher Priest Falcon series? Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's great. Are those those the UK? Did you, are those the UK printings? Are they the? I don't think so. Maybe. Wow. Oh, that's man. That's fantastic. And so it, it's a global phenomena is, is the thing is, yeah, is you never know. Um, so <laughs> we've been talking, we've been talking a lot of, um, about re- recently, we've been talking a lot about, um, the, the course that you're working with, um, with your students. It's a graphic memoir class. If I'm, if I'm getting that yeah, right, is that correct? It's a it's a composition and literature class. Oh, right on. So, so it's framed up like that, and I decided to do graphic memoirs with them. So um, I always get what we're doing. We did Jeremy dresses? Um, we want to see Auschwitz, which is he's French, and it's a story about him going to Poland to find his kind of ancestry and information about his grandmother. We did um, Kristen Radke's Imagine Wanting Only This. Um, Right now we're doing George Takei's, uh, they call us enemy. We're doing as well Craig Thompson's Blankets. And I, we were going to do Lucy Nicely's um, An Age of License, which is basically her, her, her memoir of traveling to Europe for a comics festival. And she went to Bergen, Norway, which is where I was. I read it last year. So it's probably kind of that, like, that reason I wanted to do it. But it's kind of her finding herself, which a lot of these deal with. But they couldn't get copies of it in, so we may be doing Speak on His Mouse. Um, right. Not not sure exactly. That's probably what we're going to do if we have time. Okay. But one of the things that's really kind of a through line through all of these memoirs is memory and the slipperiness of memory, kind of what memory is, and connecting that with some other literature and things like that. Um, but of course, the composition class too. Mm-hmm. Um, every composition classes are um, you know bread and butter for for a lot of universities. Um, I would say all universities, but for most yeah. of them, um, why did you decide to go graphic novels or graphic memoirs? Um, cause there's plenty of, uh, I guess we can call them not graphic me- memoirs. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at it, there's connections you can make with poetry. Like Racky mentioned Wordsworth and things like that. Um, there's connections you can make with other texts. So I think going with the graphic memoirs allowed for kind of an expansion and an introduction to students of, what's possible with this with this type of text and one of the things that really stuck out to me too i, I think it was hillary shoots um essay in pmla i got the title of it 
but she talks about, she's talking about Spiegelman and she's talking about others as well, but she talks and um, Sacco, but she talks about the fact that something that I've noticed is reading comics or graphic memoirs is a lot more time consuming and a lot more in depth, I would say, than reading prose or than reading poetry. There's a lot more you have to think about and there's, you have to slow down and go back and go forward if you want to, but you have to sit there and parse things apart. You can't just read it and go. And typically what I do, the first time I read something, I read it. I read the words. Right. And that's what I focus on. That's what I've been trained to focus on. But then when I go back, I start to look at the visuals and how they're interplaying with the text and what else is going on there. It, it's, it's a form of multimodality, right? This, right. this multimodal literacies um, that function in a, in 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 con- like the, these cognitive functions is what I was looking for those cognitive functions um, operate in concert right so and and we look at uh, Scott McCloud's work um, we look at um, uh, yeah we started with that right? right and this notion of okay so here's what's happening here's how s- kind of a, a semiotics crash course those those types of things exactly um, but then also what you're what your brain is actually doing, what actually, how you're, how you are reading these things, um, which is, you know, of, of course, you, the, <laughs> of course, a novel is not the same as a gra- piece of graphic art. A prose novel is not the same as a piece of graphic narrative. Um, of course, they're different, but to to just attend to and 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 realize that look, these are asking us to do different things, right? Um, a graphic narrative can can stretch or compress time. For example, a, a second can last a, a whole page. I just read, um, you know, I just read a the newest um, giant size X Men, um, the number one I think that just came out. There, there's words on the first page and words on the last page, and that's it. Everything else is. Uh, a narrative. It's uh, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, and Storm, uh, and it is it is remarkable. Um, and so uh, it it it's functions in in particular in particular ways, and does asks us to do invites us to do particular things. So that's well, really really cool. Yes, like, you know, yes. Like, um, like Kevin Sacco, no right. words. That's There's right. like a, a few here and there, and the way you kind of interpret it, interpret it is visually. Right. But it also reminds me, too, I mean, I'm just pulling the things off of my a thing, but, but Andrew's Iron Fist. Yes. I mean, visually, the things that he's doing, you have to parse out. Right. You know, with his, with his movement and time and things like that, and how you do that. Um, one of my students, I just wrote an essay, that, you know, my, my students are writing essays about um, the graphic memoirs of reading. And in Jermaine Dress's book, he's remembering, his, he's remembering his grandmother. And there's an early scene where she talks about where he's remembering her drinking coffee with her, basically. You're drinking tea and they're talking right. about the past. He walks out of the room and he comes back and asks where she is. So, right. of course, the time has been compressed and... He's thinking about his memory of her together, but he's also thinking about losing her. Right. So it's this compression of memory, too. And even in um, Radke's uh, Imagine One Knowing This, actually, you know, um, putting pencils or markers or erasers down on the page to show that what she is representing isn't 
that it's her representation. Of it. Right. And there's other artists who do that too, like Bechtel and um, others. But those types of things have to get students to think about what's going on here. Do you think that that is, and, and, and I want to, I don't want to prompt you too much, but but what is it about comics, graphic narrative, and those things that you think are are significant, are important? Why do we need to study uh, these things? Um, because, and and I've often asked this question at the at the end, but but it seems an appropriate time here. Um, we've got all this stuff, <laughs> all this stuff happening, all of these very um, real things. So why? Why take time to, to, to explore and take comics seriously? I mean, I used to never think I would take comics seriously. <laughs> I mean, truthfully. Right. And yet. <laughs> yeah, it, it's still the, the mentality that you've seen a lot of scholarship or at least earlier scholarship is the fact that, hey, these were things for kids. Right. You know, and I think there, there's things you can do and there's um, – issues and themes you can approach with the graphic memoir or with the graphic narrative that are a lot different than what you do with prose. Um, I was just thinking about this, and this may not necessarily answer the question, but I was thinking about what makes something like Ben Franklin's autobiography different than, say, a graphic autobiography. Right. Right? What, what makes a textual autobiography different? You take what Franklin says, even though you know you wrote, he wrote it for a son, he's inflating himself. Mm-hmm. you take it kind of as what happened, right? Right. Even though we know these things are constructions, I think the visual aspect shows us that it is a construction and has this really focus on that construction. Right. Um, now, in regards to themes and things like that, I think with Takei's book, you know, the one, of course, I was just teaching, deal with the Japanese internment. And he has a point in the, in the book where he's like, when I got older, I looked at the civics. I mean, I did my history books, looked through the history books, and there was no mention of, of internment, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you tell that story? It's, it's the age-old question, I think, too, of the stories that aren't told. Yes. And there, but there's a really unique way you can do it visually as compared to what if he just wrote this book for kids, right? And it was a prose book. Would, would, would students, say, in middle school or high school, engage with it in the same way? Right. I would and probably say no. No, I, and I would, I'd, I'd, I'd co-sign that. I definitely would, would agree. Um, in fact, I was just reading uh, David Walker's excellent um, graphic rendition of Frederick Douglass's narrative. Oh, sorry, right, I, mean, I love Walker. It's, it's, it's remarkable. He's, he's fantastic. Uh, shouts out to David Walker. Um, hi, David. And Chuck Brown. And Chuck Brown. And Sanford Green. The, the, the Bitterroot crew for sure. Um, and uh, but but I think you're right in that um, the the significance of stories and the ways in which we go about send, telling and as in sending and and then receiving and then internalizing those stories right um, yeah. is is when we say different it you know the kids say oh, it hits you different <laughs> right well it, I mean I mean thinking about this how would you do and I know there there are texts like this but how would you do like a bit of read right. with, with, with the monsters, right? That, that right. are racism. How right. would you do something like infidel? Right. Oh, what a great have the title. same impact. You know, right. um, I don't know if you could, because there's something very visceral about the visual image of it. 
and and that is you know that's a word that that has come up in a number of these um is in fact i'm gonna i'm gonna make it a tag i'm gonna gonna start making it a tag because it is it is a it is it is visceral it it gets into your guts (laughs) right it gets it 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 permeates in a in in a way that connects deeply with you um you you have a you you have a physical reaction right you know the other thing i just thought about um because mcleod and others talk about this too is the fact that it's a collaborative project right absolutely and in more ways than just illustrator and, and writer some are just the writer of course and serves writer and illustrator both parts right but it's one of the things that I try to stress to, to students in composition classes and other essays is that when you're writing, it's not singular in, sol- in, in solitude. You're collaborating. You know, um, I use they say, I say, you know, Graf and Birkenstein. Right. Talks right. about being in conversation. Kenneth Burke's uh, parlor metaphor. But it's a, conver- it's a conversation and you're working with other individuals, even if you write the essay yourself. You're right. conversing with the people you're writing about, but you're also probably having somebody come and look at it. Right. So it's not right. just you. And it, it is, and, and I think that's part of one of the powerful, the powerful moves in, in thinking about, you know, we're talking about the, the graphic autobiography. One of the powerful moves, I think, is in many cases, and, and this, is, this is not to, to call, anybody, call anybody out, but, but in many cases, it feels very solitary. Composition or writing, even telling your own story, feels very solitary or you know, I'm going to write this for my professor or for my teacher because... Nobody else is going to read it. Right. Yeah. Whereas this is um, something a little bit... Because you're, you're actually... This is something a little more social because you're actually asking them to compose their own. Is that... Am I getting that right? They'll, they'll be putting their own memoir together? Yeah, I have kind of two... They, they can either put their put their own graphic memoir together or they have another assignment. And I'm about to give them actually that assignment. Um, I know it's a little bit later in the game, but give them that assignment because it's going to be their last one. It's going to be doing about a month and a half. And then I'm actually going to walk through and do it with them. Um, mine won't be a personal graphic memoir. I'm kind of going to do something based on Lillian Smith, but I'm going to go through and construct one with them too and kind of work through the process That's, on my own um, based on things that I've learned and seen. And That's so dope. We're just going to do it together. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully, it'll turn out good. Um, how these things work? Well, I mean, that's part of the that's part of the thing, right? Is is the that innovation comes through um, through through risk taking, right? Through how I want to put this, um, and we were talking about this, right? So um, we've read um, we read the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, um, the you know the first one where they decide to go on one a trip across. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Go um, trip across America. Um, I, think, I think I think I tried to read those like maybe last year, and I was like, oh, yeah, right. But this, but but this, uh, oh well, you know, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill were like, oh well, we this is about to get canceled, you know, because they had put the they had put the two together, and they're like, well, let's just go for it, let's let it rip. Same thing, you know, X Men, kind of the the same thing. Um, a lot of these. Um, steps forward have come from a Spider-Man, right? Amazing Fantasy was just getting ready to get, and Stan Lee was going to just go home. Um, but, 
but the the risk taking the hey this is what i want to do can lead to just uh, f- uh phenomenal and and meaningful innovations right so i'm 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 excited to see um i'm excited to see what what comes of it and i think it's really important and really cool that you're um that you're doing this that, that you're co-creating, right? You're collaborating alongside, right? Because a lot of times, especially in the universities, uh, professors or instructors are seen as these, um, I don't know, these, these removed people who are, you know, they already know things and then yeah. they're, they're bringing you the knowledge. Whereas what you're saying is, is kind of taking that power dynamic and saying, no, I'm, I'm building the road. I'm, I'm building this right along and with that, you. We're building the road as we walk, which is... I'm going to say, and I, I want to be upfront with them when I do things like this. I'm like, this is the first time I'm doing this. Oh, sure. You know, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to turn out. We'll just see. I don't know how much they take that. But, I mean, being upfront with students, I think, is very important no matter what we're doing. Oh, oh, definitely. And I think, I think there is a... Um, there's an honesty, there's an authenticity to to that because this co- this comics course. First of all, this is the first comics, uh, the first time I've taught this course, um, and then now we can't. We're not even meeting in in, in person, um, and so this isn't the way I had it planned. But we're making, you know, we're doing things. But but I have said a number of times, I, we are trying we are trying out cool, new, interesting things, and hopefully. Um, something meaningful co- will come out of it. I think that gets you a lot of, um, uh, I don't want to say leeway, but a lot of grace and gratitude, right? They're like, well, yeah, that was weird. <laughs> let's, let's, we're not, let's, we're weird together. Yeah, what, we're, yeah, it went weird together. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Um, and I was actually just thinking about um, things that people, um, things that people did when there, when no one really was, not when no one was watching, but I, I was thinking about hey, trying new things, and I was thinking about Chris Priest and Black Panther, right? And it's like, hey, you want to, you want to do Black Panther? We're not sure what to do with this character. Go. <laughs> um, yeah, and he was like, I did not want Black Panther. Right, exactly, and he was like, I didn't. <laughs> which was, which was really interesting because he was like, I don't want to write basically a black book, which gets right. into other discussions we'll have later, but. But that whole thing, I mean, Priest Black Panther is really interesting. I, I think after Jungle Action, I don't know if that was the second one I read. And then I went back and did some of the Avenger stuff. And some of that Avenger stuff is really fascinating, too. Yeah. Um, Roy Thomas and um, all of them. But especially with the Monica Lynn storylines. Um, yes. But the Priest stuff is, is really interesting in a lot of ways. And I think him as, an, him as a writer what he is doing because he, he points out, I think in one of his blogs and you can kind of see it in here and his choice of having, you know, Ross as narrator. Right. He's writing for the, for the white comic book goer basically. Right. 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 And he, he says that. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting thing, which is part of a, a literary tradition an African American right. literary tradition. Right. Um, I think it's important to, to consider him within. And he's doing it earlier too. In other words, I mean, uh, the Power Man Iron Fist stuff that he does. Yes. Yes, that's absolutely that's absolutely true. There. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the Matthew Perry, right? The Matthew Perry frame narrative. <laughs> oh, the, so. the, the, yeah, Matthew Perry, Michael J. Fox, right? Yeah, yeah, that Matthew Perry, and Michael J. Fox, right? Um, and the infamous and the infamous selling your soul for a pair of pants, which is one of my favorite 
<laughs> well, this guys. is, I mean, this whole first issue, this is Priest's first issue with Mark Teixeira, and, you know, right. as the as illustrator, but this whole opening, yes, just with, with Ross, the emperor of useless white boys, which is the important phrase to sitting on the toilet pointing a gun at a rat who's off, who's off stage, basically. Right. But what does this image make you think of? Um, what does this image? What does this image make me think what, of? What, what, what kind of cultural connection do you see with this image? <laughs> well, I see, man. I see. Uh, I see a lot. Um, well, one of the things I think, um, you know, when I look and I see Emperor of Useless White Boys, that another for me, another uh, another uh, euphemism for the toilet is the throne. So I uh-huh. see him as I see him as I see him as on the throne. <laughs> but this is. And, 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 and toilets are full of crap. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yes, I like that. but that's just me. That's me over, that's me over analyzing one little thing. No, um, I, I, th- I think that that, I, I really like that. I may, I may use that. Um, but there's something I want to point out in a second. Yeah. But of course we, we got to look at the, the text too, and the way he frames it. Right. Right. If you really pay attention to the way that Ross frames T'Challa throughout these whole first few issues, he never refers to him by name. Right. Or very rarely, he calls him the client. That's right. You know, um, he has these things, he has these thoughts about the Leslie and Hill housing project. He talks at one point about, well, I would assume they would bust out in song like West Side Story. That's right. Um, his kind of perceived image of T'Challa, perceived image of the individuals who live in Leslie and Hill he calls them indigenous tribes. That's right. So, so the language he uses, and then of course that um, juxtaposed against Zuri, who's of course off off camera, talking about the white devil coming into Wakanda and all that stuff too. And then, then we get, of course, on the second page. He didn't shut up until the devil stopped by. <laughs> right. But, what, but if you think about what's really interesting here. Who's the devil? We figure out it's, it's um, Mephisto. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, Mephisto, yeah. Right. We figure out it's him later. Right. But we switch to him and Nikki, right? Right. The devil, yeah. Right. The, <laughs> that's, the, that's the right. devil you know or something like that. Right. I can't read the top of it because of my screen tear stuff. Right. So is the devil T'Challa? Right. Right. He's playing with all these kind of semantic things. And, and do you remember what um, uh, Kaseda and, and Palmiati wanting him to do like quantum and woody right right which right. was like what movie oh the uh like Pulp fiction yeah that's why I was, I was thinking <laughs> when i heard woody i was all of a sudden like toy story that's not right sorry no <laughs> so uh, yeah if you, yes if Pulp you fiction. Go back here if you go back here what does this make you think of partly well <laughs> um it, it makes me well Think, of, think about Pulp Fiction. There's about two or three scenes with John Travolta in the bathroom and one where he's coming out and gets shot, right? That's right. That's right. So That's right. If you think about the narrative framework, what's going on, then also look at this. His headings, right? Right. Superfly. They're, they're all Superfly, all right? Yep. All right, no big deal. Superfly, exploitation film, right? Right. A little bit further, of course, we get to Charlotte coming in, all that. The really nice artwork. Oh my gosh. 
Someone to share his best work. But then, like right here. So, <laughs> look at the headings. Paging missing Tarantino. Right. And then when he goes to pick up the Chala, what's he, what's he listening to? <laughs> Jungle Boogie. Which is? <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, well it, it's in Tarantino's work. It's the um, opening of Pulp Fiction. That's right. That's right. So, in this first issue, there are callbacks to Tarantino. Right. And not just in the style, but in this way. And if you think back to Ross, right. you can think about him as kind of, remember Tarantino at this moment, I think Jackie Brown just came out, maybe 97, maybe 98. Yep. Spike Lee was very adamant about the use of the N-word in it, of course. Yep. You know, yep. other, um, even in Pulp Fiction. But if you think about it, the way that specifically white readers or white audiences engage with black culture and Tarantino is part of that, right? Right. So then if you think about the way that's filtered through Tarantino, then through to me in high school or late high school, coming in contact with Pulp Fiction and the Reservoir Dogs, right? For sure. So how is all of this filtered through? I think that's what's going on with yeah. the priest too, partly. Um, because there's, there's one later when, um, when Casper Cole becomes... That there's there's multiple Pulp Fiction references, but there's one right. later when Casper Cole becomes um, Black Panther, Black Panther. Or is the the trainee basically. Right. There's kind of this speech that somebody gives that directly mirrors, um, basically Jules' speech at the end. Right. Right. So, oh yeah yeah yeah. So there's all this kind of intersection I think going on with Priest, and, and and it fits in with what he says I think getting to the white reader and having Ross as that narrator. And telling, and, and telling, I think, yeah, telling per, particular, yes, but telling particular stories, um, this resonated um, down the down the line because if I remember, if I remember correctly, and I was, uh, if I remember a conversation I had, it was, it was not, it didn't just fly off. This didn't fly off the shelves. Oh my gosh, I love that Mephisto, uh, that Mephisto image. Uh, pants. And then, and one of the other things is, um, and, 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 um, there's a, there's an example of stretching out time, right? Four panels of <laughs> four panels that take about a second. But one of the things I've always noticed about that, that panel is, um, he, you know, he talks about the emperor of useless white boys and he has no pants. Like the emperor has no clothes, right? Like this, yeah. right? this, this, this notion of, well, Right, like he has no, he has no clothes, um, in so to speak. Right, um, he's very, yeah. <laughs> well, he, he, he doesn't. He, he's very. Right. I mean, Ross. Ross is very. He's a government. He's a government, not official, but basically government worker. Yeah, he's a lackey. He has, yeah, and he has. He's used as says to mouth the racist thoughts or the thoughts of the liberal white reader, but the white reader too. Remember? Right. And right. what's really interesting too is if you look at the, if you look at the letters pages, the responses to them, like some people are like, why the hell is this guy narrating it? Right. And then some people are like, thank you for having this guy narrate it, which of course the letter, letters pages is usual both sides, but right. that's really interesting to think about. And what, and what having Ross as a narrator makes me think about how readers interacted with it and what they got from it. That's right. Because unless you think about these semiotic connections, uh-huh. You're not you're not picking this stuff up. No. I mean Mr. Tarantino. Oh, okay, he's, he's representing Tarantino. This is kind of full fiction. Right. Right. <laughs> you know. I was gonna say Priest has been doing this for a long time. 
Right. I mean, you have to remember, he did Power Man and Iron Fist. Right. Um, and he was, he was, he was pointing out the absurdity of Luke Cage. This is, I remember what, in oh, yeah. six, maybe, maybe 846, yes. and this is Indy yeah. Bright. Right. This is, there's, there are two specific issues where he's really tackling kind of this absurdity with, with Cage. Right. And at this panel right here at the top, you know, there's a lot of problems with Cage, which we can talk about if you want to, but, um, right. Cage is thinking after he's getting angry with somebody and he's using his, his, I don't like this word, but ghetto voice, his black boy yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's thinking after the guy leaves, you know, um, what does Misty see in that guy? What a cold fish. Mm-hmm. You think the guy was dead or something? And then this part, my loud, angry Negro bit didn't phase him, got him moving to plan B. Right. So that, that, little, that little moment showing That's that right. Cage is acting. That's this right. is not him. He's playing into stereotypes. Yeah. It's it's performative, right? right. Um, and then that's actually mirrored. It, it's funny because that's mirrored in in Buck Wild in in, right. in which, which I want to get to. Yeah, you, you just want to go there? No, we can. Uh, no, let's keep let's keep talking, Luke Cage. Okay, so this is another panel that stuck out to, or another sequence that stuck out to me. Right. With, with this issue, this is Power Man Iron Fist one twenty two, um, and. What happens is, I can't pronounce the guy's name, uh, Shinatang or whatever, yeah. the dragon, yeah. turns into Luke Cage, basically. And, kind right. of and then this is, uh, I think, Tyrone King, who is pointing the gun at, at, at Shinatang or right. whatever. But these, these panels are really interesting, because you get Tyrone pointing the gun, you see him morphing, yeah. but then you see him turning the cage, basically, right? Yeah. yeah. And the gun's pointed at him. And then you switch perspective. These are all in deep right, right. which I think is important, which I want to point out too. And then you see him pointing the gun at you, yep. at the reader. That's right. Um, like indicting you and almost shooting you, even though it's a fake Luke Cage, mm-hmm. it's kind of doing this. So then you go to that to that issue you were talking about, Buck Wild, right? Right. So that cover, of course, in deep right again. Um, Really good cover because he's bringing the same. I love I love everything about this cover. Um, yeah. From the way that that Rocket and Icon are, are looking like at him to what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, if you if, if you compare this with the splash page for here for higher, that's right. This is this is totally different because that splash page is um, out of hell a hero. Yeah, you have all these images yeah from hell fire. comes a hero. Yeah, right. You have all these kind of negative images like. Somebody throwing dice. Um, I got a kid with a gun. Yeah, looks like a sex worker, maybe, and yep. like the cops. It's like all yep. these kind of vice images. But this is showing him actually fighting things, right? Right. But the other important thing too is you see him tearing the the belt or what would the, be his yeah. belt? Maybe his belt. Right. Because well, for the, Luke Cage, it's a belt. For him, right. it's right. And and in the hero for hire stuff, how he gets his belt. Is yeah. really interesting because it goes to the costume shop. Yep. He's just talking to the guy, and the guy's like, "Hey, I got this extra chain. Do you want it?" He's like, "Yeah, I, I'll take that. Maybe it'll help me remember uh, my past." Basically, that's yep. it. Yep. And the chain, at least around somebody like Luke Cage, is very symbolic of a longer lineage than just as wrong for incar- incarceration. Right. Um, and it just hangs there. And then yep. there's those other there's those other moments too um, when he gets his office. Mm-hmm. For that, 
Yes. So when when he gets his office, he goes up to the top of the theater and meets meets um, DW. That's right. And DW is like, my friends call me, you know, my last name's Griffin, whatever. My friends call me DW, you know, actor director. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's a very that's a very loaded illusion, of course, with E.W. Griffin and Birth of the Nation. That's right. And you have that's to right. remember that um, Engelhart and, and them they were explicit. I mean, in the in yeah. the collected edition of Hero for Hire, they were like we we saw how much money black exploitation films were making, so we thought it was worth a venture. You know, capitalism in its finest, basically. Right. Right. So there's these moments that you're like, there needs to be some commentary here. Right. Um, but Buck Watt, of course, is, is it's really always Christmas in a lot of ways. Yeah. Of course, playing on the catchphrase, um, even the things down here at the bottom, you know, their names, mm-hmm. you know, playing off of, you know, trouble man. Yep. Dolomite playing off of these exploitation images, of course, too, on the Godfather of Soul. And, uh, and also right? that, that Mary Marvel tradition, as it were, too. Yeah. Right? But notice, notice with, with the course of Buck Wild, you know, there's an old played-out record that I can't get out of my head. He's stuck mm-hmm. in this, in this uh-huh. time. But the first page, or the, the second page after the splash page, this sequence. <laughs> yeah. It's that, it's that, and this is bright, too. Yep. It's almost that same kind of three-panel sequence. That's right. A little bit. You know, you had the guy pointing the gun at him. It's like the soundtrack of my life, um, and I can't get it out of my head. The uh-huh. music or the pictures. Um, pimps and platform shoes, big studs, fat sloppy record, and man, all these stereotypes. Yep. And then he's shot in the eye. But what gets me, of course, is this last image. And he's, he's talking about the fact that he can't change. He's, like, stuck. Yep. And it's pain that's in him, but he's also got what looks like a tear instead. That's right. So it's this it's this really interesting thing. And looking, I think, that Power Man and Iron Fist in this together. Right. There's a really interesting kind of image. Yeah, and it is a uh, man, gosh, I love this. Gosh, I love this 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 whole this whole thing. Um Oh yeah, if your students ever read Milestone, they need to go. Oh man, it's it, this uh this icon thing I think is this 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 one in particular because we do read we do read the the first Luke Cage, uh, the hero yeah, for hire. The story is the same. The story is the same. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, and I I don't want to uh give it give it too much away, but the 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 last part right of uh the the funeral, um, yep. where he talks where where they put Cage into context is, uh. Is, is something really remarkable. Um, well, you have, you have to remember, too, from what I read, they meant him as a one-off. Yeah, 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 yeah. But people liked him so much, and they saw what he were, they were doing, they, right. they, were, uh, they brought him back. I'm trying to find one issue real quick. One second. The Long Goodbye, that's such a great one. Yeah, my icon collection is working its way up. I got a good amount of them right now. I'm surprisingly, like... Up here in Northeast Georgia, finding them. They pop like, up every once really in a while. Where you find them. Yeah. It's really interesting where, where I found them. Like I, I said, I found some good ones. I found the Luke Cage one, or the Buck Wild one in Scotland. So, um, so when Icon leaves, of course, you know, the other interesting thing about, um, about Rocket and Icon that Andre Carrington and Deborah Whaley and others talk about, too, is the fact that, you know, Rocket is a superhero. She's a pregnant teenage mother. 
Uh-huh. Which, so they're, they're totally messing with, or they're totally upending everything. Um, but this right here. So right. When, when Icon leaves, um, Rocket and what sort of friend's name? Darnings? Yeah. Um, go and look for a replacement for Icon, basically. Right. And the last person they come to is Buck Wild. <laughs> and then they come to, this is one of my favorite panels. I think this, right. I think this is bright, too. They come to the theater, and what do you notice on the theater marquee? Right. And so for, uh, the, f- the first thing is we got to scrape the bottom of the barrel, like this uh, uh, yeah. notion of like, okay, I guess we can go talk to Buck Wild. Um, and that the first thing, so you've got four, you've got Birth of a Nation, Color Purple, and Let's Love got to do with it, right? right. So what, that, first of all, that makes, what? I, yeah. I, I would, that, that's very interesting because Birth of a Nation being that D.W. Griffith, um, you know, really what re what rekindles the the Ku Klux Klan in the in the um, in the collective imagination of the United States, um, but then also Alice Walker's work, and then Tina <laughs> and Tina Turner, right? right? So, um, so, so so it's two black feminist texts, basically, right? Right, right exactly. Juxtaposed against Birth of a Nation, but that Birth of a Nation is important with the callback to Cage. Right, right, right. With, with, with that lingering that, hey, what? My name's DW. That doesn't right. do anything. Um, right. And and really interestingly, and this is just kind of a side note. I just I just reread um, Max Brooks and Kanan White's Harlem Hellfighters. Oh uh, yes. And the whole use of Birth of the Nation and that yeah. and that and that book is really really powerful. And the way that um, it moves back and forth, and you. You know it's Birth of the Nation at the beginning if you, if you pay attention to the clues, but you don't get the screen or the specific, or if you didn't know, you don't get that really until the end. Um, but that's what he was ushering for. And what one of the things I think that's interesting is I was just I'm looking over this page again. Um, is look at that in that last bottom right panel. He's not normal, Darnies. He's not very smart. He's kind of embarrassing. He's right. So it's this like he's not. How should I put this? <laughs> he's yeah. he, and then he goes watermelon and Easter. Hey, you showed up. Like, what are you? That is not how any human person talks, <laughs> right? Well, that's what that's that's what McDuffie and Priest basically said. Right, right exactly. I, I don't remember who it was. Um, McDuffie said that Cage was the the bastard child of a thousand or ten thousand black exploitation flicks. Right. And Priest said, you know, growing up, I never sounded like Luke Cage. No, no one sounded like Luke Cage. Exactly. Um, so, so they're very adamant about that, and they're like, you know, Luke Cage never, never spoke to me. And then even with 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 Black Panther, you know, Priest right. was pretty adamant. He was like, you know, I didn't like Black Panther as a kid. Yeah, his ass kicked a lot. Yep. I mean, McGregor's book. If you look at McGregor's Jungle Action, um, there's a good article I think by um, Anna Peppard, I think that talks yep. about the fact that every time you see Black Panther typically in jungle action his clothes are ripped right a lot of the time yeah and he's getting eaten um, by a dinosaur or like something just <laughs> and, and looking over Priest there's a couple of places where his where his uniform's ripped yeah um, I think when he's fighting Killmonger yep um, but not typically like when he's fighting animals or other things like that Right. So there's some really interesting stuff, and, and there's some other interesting kind of illusion type things that go back to Tarzan and things like that too. But um, 
I can get to that in a second if you want, but this is the Icon 30, of course. Right. And I think some. this is when Buckwild, the funeral form, the whole That's, way she his funeral. But I'm really, what I like here, too, is the, the perspective. So when the preacher is absolutely. talking about him, he's like, what can I say about this guy? You want to say anything? Nothing. And what's <laughs> interesting is you're looking up from the casket. Yeah. I yeah. think, like, you're the one in this position. And then, of course, when, when Icon comes up, that right. perspective shifts. You see this one right, yeah, right here. You right. see him there. And Icon gives this riveting speech of basically being like, you know, he may not be the best hero, but he's the hero we had. Yep. Um, and then he ends with, were it not for him, we wouldn't be here today. And then you right. have kind of this continuation. That's right. And and this is one of my actually favorite from the entire Icon runs. This is one of my favorite panels because it's this it's this notion of the tension that exists within representation in comics um, with Luke Cage in particular, right? This uh, yeah, what did he say? And while we winced on occasion at his embarrassing speech and demeaning behavior, more often we cheered him on as we did the day he right right like he was like this was our guy. Yes, yeah. he was uh, he was he made us wince and cringe, but this was because whatever he was, he was always a hero, right? A hero for those of us who had no heroes. Right. And so I think, right. Like just that, that moment we're thinking about, um, you know, an icon is, is, um, like the conservative Superman. Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, Raquel's the one who pushes them on. Right. Right. And so I think, um, what I think is interesting is that, uh, especially in this in this piece, and and to take, and, and I've had this conversation too. The the thing about comics is they are problematic as anything in anything you can imagine. Yeah. But there is, but, and that's the tension because people because people make it when we take those things seriously, whether it's race or gender and class. There's there is a tension, um, but it is it is never wholly a. Uh, it is never wholly without merit, but it is never wholly without being without uh, room to critique to push it forward, right? So as as we're looking, it's like there's Falcon, but you know you better not mess with Jim Crow. Oh my goodness, guys! Even Captain America with a walker, right? Right, exactly, <laughs> right. Um, and and uh, I think that and then they do Black Goliath uh, as well, right. or or. Uh, or something uh, akin to that black lightning, buck lightning, right? Um, <laughs> oh, this is such a great, such but, a. But what's interesting too, and I forgot this guy's name. Is this the Kingfisher? Yeah, it's a Kingfisher. It's Tobias you know, Whale, but yeah, he's basically like, um, I need him to exist. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is which is another interesting, I think, kind of little moment because um, I need him to exist. It's kind of like James Baldwin. Yeah, you know, you made me. You yeah. made me an end, basically. Yes. you need me to exist. You need me. It's to kind exist. of that same discussion that's going on there. Is you as a white person created this, right? And you need me as this as this other. So if if I'm not here, then what do you have? Or if you're not here, then what's here? Basically, right? So right. I think that that's what's going on with that kind of discussion with Kingfisher too. Right. A little bit because I mean. Think about McDuffie. I mean, I, right. I, the first time I came across McDuffie was Deathlock. Yes. Um, and he's Deathlock and um, 
Oh, crap. What is it? There's a pretty blue jay outside. I love seeing that blue jay every day. Um, it's Deathlock, and who's he talking with? I think he's talking with Misty Knight, maybe. Uh-huh. But they're talking about um, cyborgs and cybernets and the way cybernets a negative word, basically. Right. Right. So they're talking about that. And then when they move into her apartment, they start talking about the boys. Mm-hmm. So they have this kind of science, science fiction terminology first, and then they come into basically the terminology from African-American intellectual um, thought right. about language. Right. right. Um, and McDuffie talks about the fact he was reading Signifying Monkey in Lewis Cage mm-hmm. Jr., all these mm-hmm. other texts at the time, and how much they in- informed him. I mean, if you, look, if you look at his stuff, it's everywhere. I mean, even David Walker, you can see that. That's right. That's about his. I mean, with Nighthawk, and, um, even his Luke Cage. I mean, his, his Luke, Luke Cage. Cage is not, not Luke Cage and Power Fist, because that one's really good to our power No, you just, just get the single Cage, the, the Cage comic. Right. His, his single Luke Cage comic, where he goes to New Orleans, and the... Um, the critique of Bernstein yeah. is very, I think, important. And I think that's the thing that comics can do. That's because, right. Because you're working, if, if you're thinking, not graphic memoirs, if you're thinking like serialized comics, you're working with history. And you're, now that I think about it, you're actually in the process of reimagining that history. So exactly. it's not the same thing historians do, or as the literary scholars do. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, even, then even the show enough, which kind of makes me call back to show enough said, yep, yep. You know? That's and trying, you know, this this notion of trying to do, trying to do what was right, right. Let us hope right. our day is done. History remembers him kindly. Like it's, it's that's uh, it, it's it's powerful, um, and it, it it thinks about re recontextualizing history, um, and re reframing the ways in which stories are told and understood right and, and i think that's really really important especially like mcduffie and and and, and walker um walker's shaft for for example is is phenomenal as well i don't know if you've read I'm, i think like i read that. it a while back it's been a little while yeah it's uh it's when it's um you know the 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 significance but then also the tension of all of those things that come out of that black exploitation era right um and um and and what it tells us about um what it tells us about how we think about uh other think about others um and think about people and one of the things i love about actually love about luke cage is that um like many comics it can grow comics grow up with us in in a lot of ways so this initial very problematic um you know when i think about um when I think about Black Mariah uh, and her first and her first uh, depiction, and then um, flash forward to her depiction in the the Cage series with Cheodari Coker, right? Um, it, it is radically different, um, but still pushing us and inviting us as 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 viewers, as audiences, as readers that are spending time with this to to think about the ways in which these visuals, these representations are mobilized, who's doing it and what that, what that means for how we think about it. Well, I was going to say that's even interesting too, because I mean, Engelhardt even points out, I think in that, in that thing that while it's a capitalist endeavor, 
it's also an important endeavor too, kind of. And then you see McGregor totally up in that, right? Right. With jungle action, that comes a couple years later. Right. Um, and he was like very adamant about the fact this is set in Africa. All these characters need to be black. Right. Basically. So, and they, and they gave him Venom, basically. Right. And then, then, and then he gave him Venom, which was the, the white character, maybe right. a fine character. Right. But then he also, he, McGregor also points out, too, he's like very adamant about the fact and points out that, you know, I forgot who it was, but two characters are homosexual on that. In that That's period. right. That's right. And he's like, that had to fly under the radar. It did. And if you look at his later stuff, I think it's, um, I actually found this need to be read it, but, you know, his Sable. Yes. This is really interesting. Um, with a lot Gosh, of that's a good time. Of course, he did, he did the Panthers quest again later. Right. Deals with South Africa. So, right. But while you were talking to you think about representation, the way things change, you could also start off, I think, on positive footing. Yeah. Because I, I think about this, I taught this last year, and I always go back and read more, probably because I love the artwork, but you know, G. Willow Wilson. Oh my gosh. We read, we read no normal, right. Um, in our, in our course, um, to talk about, um, to talk about how, how it, how, what a disruptive text that is. Oh yeah. Nobody dies. No families die. Right. I had, I had no clue for the longest time how to think about that panel. That's probably one of my favorite panels. It's, it's, it is Remark the whole thing. G. Willow Wilson's work, um, especially with Kamala Khan, that whole thing yeah. is just disruptive as heck, and I love it. And it is not only is it a good story; it has depth and depth is layers and layers and layers, right? Um, and the artwork and what and the artwork is is phenomenal. Um, you know the same the same artist that did the same artist that did uh, that did Runaways. Um, Alfona's work is 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 absolutely terrific. Um, I was thinking about uh, that that legendary story. The uh, the editorial mandate came down. I think it was for I think it was was it McGregor or was it Thomas? The uh, that that Black Panther needed to have more white folks in it, and so that's why he decided. Okay, well, we'll have him fight the Klan then. Um, <laughs> well, even even that. I mean, that that one. The one issue I want, where where him and um, Monica are in the store, you remember that one? Yes, yes. I, That's I have, a really. Yeah, I have that one in my in my um, in my short box. So that one is really interesting because he he goes and and somebody was like, well, he goes to the store in the mask. That's kind of a campy thing, but he goes to the freaking grocery store in his mask. Right. Um, and she comments on it. Yep. You know, it's it's really this this commentary. I think partly on double consciousness and the mask we wear too, and those types of things. Specifically, yes, sir. With race, yes, sir. Um, but then there's then there's these other moments that McGregor has for everything that McGregor is good at. There are these other moments where he talks, where it's him and her. Um, sorry, Monica and her sister. What's her sister's name? I'm I'm blanking right now. But Monica and her sister are talking about playing in Georgia and there's these references to Elders Cleaver and James Baldwin where they don't know what it's like, but it's, it's, it's really kind of a, not really derogatory statement, but really kind of a weird statement. Right. Um, I don't know. But anyways, yeah, I mean, those, those, those types of things too. Um, yeah. It's, um, I'm interested now you, um, as you said, sort of this past couple of, past couple of years, um, and we were kind of talking about um, your work with um, with Yerby, 
and and how there's some connections with um in your mind with with chris priest um can you talk a little bit about your work with that uh, that you do with yerby and uh or that you've done and um what connections that might that you see that that having with uh with uh, comics. So when you see the Derby books here, I don't know if you can see him. He published like 33 novels. Um, right. He was, he was a, he was a black author. Uh-huh. Um, his dad was African American and Seminole and his mom was Scotch Irish. He was born in Augusta, Georgia. Um, so legally he was black. Um, I hate even using those terms. He has, mm-hmm. he has a quote in an interview that says, um, adjectives are the enemies of nouns, basically. Mm. Kind of talking about his identity. But he went to Payne College, went to Fisk University. He wrote poetry, and he wrote some short stories. So he was around, the, he was born in 1916, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe 18. Um, but he was writing stories and coming of age really at the time of Wright, you know, after Harlem Renaissance a little bit, went to college in the thirties. So about the time of Wright, social protest when that's kind of taking off. Right. Um, and he's publishing stories that are in the social protest vein, short stories. You know, he, he wins the O. Henry award for best short story, second African American after Wright to win it. Right. 1944 for health card. And he's publishing these stories, and then he tries to publish basically a, a social protest novel with an educated, college-educated black main character in 45 or 46 when he tries to publish it. The publisher doesn't want it, but tells him that the writing's good, go back and think of something else, basically. <laughs> but it doesn't get published. Right. So he switches, and he turns to, my cover's flying apart, he turns to stuff like this. This is Fox. his first novel, The Foxes of Hair. It was born in yes. um, 1916. Yes, sir. This is the Fox of Hero. This is very different than social protest to go to the cover. It's uh-huh. very much gone with the windy kind it of Very, very much so. The wind came out in 36. The film came out, of course, in 39. Um, I don't remember when Faulkner's Absalom and Sign of the Fury came out, but I see this as kind of a response to Absalom, too, a little bit. Right. Um, but it's definitely a response to Gone with the Wind. But it's this moonlight, it looks like it's a moonlight magnolia story. This glorification of the old South when it's really not if you read underneath it. Um, but he he turned to this kind of costume historical romance stuff. Uh-huh. And he points out in an interview, he's like James Baldwin was preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a little bit later when, when Baldwin, of course, came about. And he says, one of my one of my favorite quotes is I, I write for the bigots. Um, I wrote to get to the in haters, and I got to some of them. Mm. So he writes for the white reader, basically. Right. And most of his books were book, book of the month clubs. Right. Um, he was the first black author to have his book rights optioned off for a film. So the film version right. that was Fox's. That was Fox's, right? Right. That came out in forty-seven. Um, so he's doing that, and of course, the film's totally different. I mean, there are things that are the same, but it, it cuts right. off like halfway through, basically. Right. Um, but he's writing for white audiences. He's writing for white women, he says to so that audience. But he's being very kind of subversive with what he's doing. So, for example, with Foxes, it's the story of Stephen Fox, 18, right. early 1800s, who basically is an Irish immigrant and makes his fortune in New Orleans, um, buys a plantation, enslaves a bunch of people starts a family, becomes very prosperous, at the end of the war, loses it all, basically, okay? Right. 
you know, what you typically think of. He's a, he's a, he's a interesting character, complicated because he, he, he does kind of get to the point where he realizes that slavery is wrong. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do anything about it, but he kind of realizes it. And there's a reversal, of course, one of his enslaved becomes kind of in a place of power in the war and lands after the war. Right. <clears throat> but if you didn't know that, the novel starts with him getting thrown off a, um, a steamboat, basically, in the Mississippi River for gambling, cheating the gambling, and then he makes his fortune. And that's, how, that, that, that's where the novel begins in chapter one. There's a prologue, though. Okay? There's like a two-page prologue. The paperback version of the book I have doesn't have the prologue. Okay. The hardback version does. Um, you can find it on archive.org. The prologue is in the present, and the, the narrator's talking to you as the reader, and basically says, you see this house, it's all in decay, uh, it looks pretty in sunlight, it looks prettier in the dark, but it's crumbling, basically, right? Mm-hmm. doesn't mention any names. Go, it basically takes you on a tour through all this stuff. You go out to the cookhouse, and you see Aunt Colleen, who's an enslaved woman. You see her cooking. That's the only name in the whole prologue. So you see this decaying house that looks pretty in certain light, looks like run down another light, and then you get in your boat. And then it starts with Stephen getting their knock, right? <laughs> right. So the prologue sets you up to kind of read it a little subversively to think about, okay, so what happened to this house? Right. Um, and like I said, the interesting thing is that Colleen's only one name. If you look at the novel too, Colleen actually saves Stephen tells them when to, when to harvest his crops because he feels a storm's coming, um, feeds him basically when um, they don't have any food, teaches him how to eat crawfish basically. There's all these moments where she basically builds the plantation as enslaved individuals do. Um, right. So there's these little moments, but it's all underneath the story of Stephen and, and his love, his, his love lives basically, right? Mm-hmm. His family this. So that's what a lot of his novels were. Um, with these undercurrents and he's writing, like I said, for white readers and Priest is kind of doing the same thing. Uh, but like I said, you already published 33 novels. This novel is the first one I read from him. This is Seat Now. This is 1969. Uh-huh. Uh, this is the first novel he had with the black protagonist. Wow. 23 okay. novels in. And out of the 33, he only had two. Okay. Um, so that's the other thing, too. Right. And, of course, Ross is the white narrator. And mm-hmm. Priest says, I'm writing it to get to, you know, the, to get, the, to get the, the white middle-class comic book store goer to purchase the book so that we can survive this, right? Right. So it's, it, it's these types of things. If you think he, and if you really look at what he says there, it's kind of the same thing as Jeremy, that I'm writing to get to these individuals. Right. So that's what he's. That's why I think he's doing in Power Man Iron Fist. He even has. He even has a scene. And um, let me pull this up real quick. One of the scenes that really stuck out to me in that Falcon series. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the scenes that really stuck out to me in that Falcon series is very kind of um, interesting. Remind and kind of connects with all this. This is, this is the first book that he did, right? Am I right about that? Um, the first, that's the first series he did. He right. guested on, uh, he guested on uh, Power Man Iron Fist um, before he took over writing, but in the interim, I believe, 
and somebody can check me on this. I'm sure the internet will. Um, <laughs> he did the uh, the Falcon series, which is phenomenal. He's, Where is it? There's one panel I'm thinking about because when the Sentinel pops up, I thought there was another panel though. Yeah, here it is at the end. The Sentinel falls apart, basically. Right. Um, it's in the landfill. But th- these kind of panels right here. So if you look right. at the top, the mutant called Cyclops, blah, blah, blah. Um, the Sentinel's in the garbage dump. The unit's dismembered structure. Blah, blah, blah. Um, this unit's electronic plane. But this one right here, this middle one. You're right. You know, your rival triggered the unit's emergency reassembling uh, programming. The way that Falcon being black, of course, for one, triggering the Sentinel yeah. who is protecting everything. I think it's, it's kind of a little, really kind of interesting type of thing. Um, yeah. Well, because of that, of course, then of course, Priest took over Captain, Captain America and Falcon. Right. There's some interesting stuff in there. Well, I think what's interesting is um, that the, you know, Falcon is not a mutant. Um, yeah, he's not. And and the 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 whole um, the reason I love this uh, this so series Kubert. is <laughs> an old Kubert shout out. The the one of the reasons I love this series is um, the 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 point of the Sentinels is to so called protect so called humanity, right? Which of course right. is is white humanity, white people in the status quo. Um, and he goes right after Falcon, and and he's these these are programmed to go after. Folks who are have been deemed not human or unhuman, inhuman, um, and <laughs> Falcon can talk to birds for a while, but he's not a mutant. But he is the the Sentinel. One of the things that's always struck me is the Sentinel is is saying is communicating. Okay, here's how you here's how the status quo is positioning you. It is positioning you and situating you politically, culturally as outside the normal right which goes right. back to well he's not normal <laughs> but in a different way yeah. I mean, he, he brings that up where, where where's the book i had it and he brings it up in the same year where basically Sam yes sir Wilson's like you know i can you can do that i can't that's right that's that's, ab- that's absolutely norway. right how about this in norway by the way <laughs> or, as, or as one or does for like two bucks that's and it's and it's, always expensive. I got it for twenty kroner, which is basically two dollars. That's so, I was happy about that. Yeah, and I think I think that's part of um, that. That's part of the for me the the significance is the ways in which folks who are telling stories do it in a way that is meaningful for them. So I, I love the. I'm going to tell my story using these these signs these signifiers that exist but i'm going to i'm going to leverage them i'm going to mobilize them to do particular work right for particular audiences in particular ways which is how storytelling works but um comics having always been a political medium um it's it's one thing to have and 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 bless them right but stan lee and uh jack kirby coming from a particular standpoint and yes they wanted to do particular ways but it 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 and i'll use this phrase again it hits different when when dwayne mcduffie's doing it right because it, it has to right and so that's why i love that you're you've got this graphic novels and this graphic narrative class because the the stories hit different 
because they're told by folks whose story this is to tell. Right. And so I think that's, I think that's significant. I think that's just, just fantastic. Um, last thing, your book on Frank Yerby, and for those who have, um, those who are, um, looking for rightfully some, some reading materials who want to, who want to tuck in. We talked, um, in one of our other podcasts you've got to do your homework, right? These, these things don't just come out magically. Um, when does that book drop? And um, It's supposed to be in May, so I'm not sure exactly what date. Um, I will yep. say this, that there is another book coming out at the same time. And I'll pull it up for you real quick, too. It's a very important book um, in regards to Frank Kirby. Veronica Watson, who is one of the contributors in, in my book, has a book coming out as well. And it is, it's University Press Mississippi. They're coming out at the same time. It's the short stories of Frank Kirby. Oh, fantastic. So she actually has, some of them were published, some were unpublished, some are still in the archives in Boston. So I would really suggest if you want to get started, start with these. That's fantastic. Um, and it's a really good collection. There's some really good stuff in there, especially Sleeps the Flag, White Magnolias is in there. Great. And these are all things that he published before or didn't, or not sure when some of the composition dates were, but the published ones were all published before his novels in 46. Okay. That's fan- that that's awesome. So we'll definitely um we'll definitely put a a link up to that too. Um <clears throat> excuse me. So yeah, I um <laughs> as as things um oh there you go. Re- there it is. There it is. That's my favorite picture of him too. That's great. It's great. Um man, I am I am really, really thankful. We are really thankful that you were able to take some time with us today um, to just to just chop it up about um, our our shared love, but then also um, the share the the shared understanding for how and why these things matter. Um, yeah. These, you know, we hear popular culture, and uh, the the sort of subtext that comes with that is that these are disposable in some way, or they're um, they they lack gravitas or gravitas or, or substance and so i really appreciate you coming on and talking it's like, yeah i appreciate it too that, that just makes me think i mean it, it makes me think about your because i mean this is what oh i love uh, the sit yes the saracen blade i know it's like i've why, that's why the first one i read why does everybody mention this book i like this one too but why does everybody mention this one I think it's because the movie has Ricardo Montalban in it. <laughs> I still don't watch the movie. Okay, I'll try and watch the movie. But no, that's the first year B. That's the first year B that I read because I was going through a big pulp fiction, not the movie, but I was going through yeah. a big pulpy phase. Well, see, my favorite, and I don't have the cover, but it's probably this one, The Treasure of Present Valley. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the shorter ones. Right. Um, but this one, this one's a Western. Yes. So this one's 19, what? What I find interesting is that this one's 1955. Uh-huh. We don't know a ton about his biography, his biography because he's pretty, you know, well, he, he, he wasn't really out in the public with a lot of stuff. Right. But a lot of stuff in here, this, I think this is when he left his first wife and, and married his, um, his Spanish wife, Bianca. Right. This is when he expatriated. Yeah, because he took off to France for a while. Right, so he went to France and then went to Spain. He spent most of his life in Spain and died in Spain. But the story is a guy in South Carolina wants his dad to get him this inheritance. He's a son of a plantation owner and wants to give him this inheritance so he can go out to California. Right. Basically, basically to leave the woman that, he's, that he loves 
because she loves somebody else. So to leave, so it's instead of moving to the east to France, it's the character moving to the to the west. So it's this kind of interesting mirror, I think, with his life at the time too. If I knew more biographically about kind of period, um, but there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. You know, yes. he's he's really fascinating. The Saracen play is really good. Uh, the man from the homie, Benton's Road is really kind of a, a takeoff, I would say, definitely of Absalom. Um, Griffin's Way has some really interesting stuff. What was really fascinating about this is he has these little moments. Uh-huh. Amidst all this sex and violence, he has these little moments that are like, I mean, the Saracen Way, the thing that sticks out to me, there's, um, there's a Jewish guy who raises the main character for one. Mm-hmm. There's also... One of the things that sticks out to me is they're talking about water wheels mm-hmm. and the fact that the water wheel came from Egypt, the way that mm-hmm. we do the water wheel. Then the monks took it over and made it theirs. That's right. Basically profited off of it. Right. So there are these little types of things. That's that a subversive moment. Right. And, and I mean, the other thing too about him too, I didn't know you read Yardy before. I thought you were, <laughs> I thought you were just interested in. Nope. No, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not a scholar such as yourself, but I, I'm, I, I'm familiar. I still have to read everything. I mean, I, I think I'm like 20 books in, maybe, uh, 30 But I mean, he has footnotes. Yep. yep. He has extensive, not in every book, but he has extensive footnotes. And he talks about, in some of the, in some of the prologues, he talks about his craft. Yep. And like this one, I haven't read this when I started it, but kind of got a little weary of it. But the girl from story, though, like the prologue in here really seems like a dig that the critics are like, he's not doing what they want him to do. Yep. Yep. Um, well, hey, uh, I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your, your time. I appreciate, uh, all of the work that you're doing for what being willing us to, to join us. I gotta go get the, I gotta go get the kids some lunch. I gotta uh, get lunch on my own. <laughs> so so yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Um, we will check, we will check it out. We will check for the, we'll check for the book to drop and, um, be well, be safe, um, and be healthy down in Louisiana. And thanks again, sir. Georgia, you too. Oh, what did I say? Louisiana. Louisiana. I'm sorry. It's in Georgia. No, okay. Be, be safe wherever you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs>